All right. Well, hi, everybody. My name is Melissa C. I'm a recovered compulsive overeater. And um, so we're going to start off um, on page 151 in A Vision for You. And it's, it starts like this. For most normal folks, drinking means conviviality, companionship, and colorful imagination. It means release from care, boredom, and worry. It is joyous intimacy with friends and a feeling that life is good, but not so with us in those last days of heavy drinking. The old pleasures were gone. They were but distant memories and never could we recapture the great moments of the past. So, you know, what that paragraph tells me, um, well, first of all, I'm not normal, right? Normal people don't just eat for nutrition. Sometimes I hear people say, um, well, I'm an emotional eater. And that might be true, but that doesn't necessarily make somebody a compulsive overeater because a lot of people eat for all sorts of reasons that have nothing to do with nutrition. Um, you know, normal people eat for fun, for intimacy, they eat for release from boredom, from worry, from care. Um, and normal folks can also eat when they're feeling restless, irritable, and discontent. In fact, many of them do. You know, it's um, it's like, uh, you know, historically, it's like a joke. Like, oh, women, you know, they eat ice cream or chocolate when they suffer a heartbreak, right? Um, and And, you know, people break up and they might go out drinking. They get upset and they go out and drink or they drink for a celebratory reasons. They eat for celebratory reasons, nothing to do with nutrition or thirst, right? Um, but what I came to discover is that part of my step one realization is that I can't treat food like normal people do. I can't treat food that way. It can't, for me, it can't be an event, you know? I can't, I can like it, right? But I can't eat recreationally, right? It's not like my pastime. Um, and yet I can go wherever normal people go though. And, you know, if we remember way back, you know, when we studied not that long ago, the chapter working with others, it tells us this on page 101, that our rule is not to avoid a place where there's drinking if we have a legitimate reason for being there. You know, and it goes on to further explain that the qualifications for a legitimate reason um, is if you have good social, personal, or business reasons for being something. And um, and if you can answer satisfactorily, you don't have to worry about going. You can go anywhere. Um, but you have to be sure that you're on solid spiritual ground um, and that your reasons for going are thoroughly good. Um so what's different, you know, than me at social gatherings, than normal people? Well, you know, what I find is that normal people um, can hang around the dinner table way after the meal is over. They can just sort of have a few bites here and there, allowing the meal to stretch on endlessly. Um, they can enjoy casual eating, you know. They can eat spontaneously at cocktail parties and happy hours and other ways that normal people socialize with food. 
And for them, it's almost like the um, food is like the background music at an event, you know, so they don't necessarily make a plate, but they just sort of put their hands in having no idea how much they're eating. Um, but, but, and they can, I've watched some of these people, they have a few bites and they still talk, they still engage in conversation. They look like they're engaged with the people around them and then they go back for a few more bites, right? Um, they eat to enhance the gathering. And, but when I engaged in casual eating, the background music of, you know, the food gets so loud that it's the only thing that I hear. That would be the only thing I could hear. Um, and I can't attend to the conversations around me. That's what it would look like. So that all I would hear was the chatter in my brain talking to me all about the food. Can I eat some more? Will anyone notice I ate some more? I shouldn't eat some more. I had enough. Don't go back for more. And I'm I'm catching like every third word, maybe, if I'm lucky. Um, and, you know, it was a sad realization that eating socially, things like popcorn at the movies and, and just spontaneous dinners out with no plan, um, you know, an ice cream cone at the neighborhood stand was something I could no longer do, you know, and for me, it wasn't because some sponsor dictated that I couldn't do it, but it was because I had conceded to my innermost self that there was nothing social about my eating, um, you know, but the disease tries to convince me and it always would by appealing to my sense of nostalgia. Like I'm going to recapture some feeling that I used to have and my human desire to feel connection, whether it's to my culture. So it would talk about a holiday, you know, this is an important time to eat this based on my culture my friends, my family, but my recovery informed me that I can't eat to socialize, that for me, eating is antisocial um, if I'm doing it for the wrong, at the wrong way, right? I can't use food for just connection and intimacy because I would actually disconnect and I don't feel close to the people around me. In fact, you know, I, I I had an experience where a dear friend of mine was at the end of her marriage um, and we went out to dinner and I was in the grip of my disease, trying desperately to put the food down. And, um, and this friend that I love so much, um, all I could hear was that the bread, I ate a piece of bread in the basket on the table and that's a food I can't eat. And once I ate it, I couldn't even hear what she was telling me about her marriage. I knew she was sad. I knew I was supposed to care, but my mind was so fixed on the bread on the table. And then I remembered having this thought, which is horrible because this is my friend that I adore. And I thought, oh, she's so upset. I bet she's going to want dessert, right? It was like, almost like I was happy that my friend was sad because it was going to give me an opportunity to eat. Um, and, you know, and so if that's your experience, then how do I connect? What do I do then? What's going to become of me if I can't use 
food as a form of connection anymore. That no longer is the glue that gets to hold me together with people around me. And I think that's really what this chapter could be called. Like, what is to become of me now? What, what do I do now? Um, page 152, the first paragraph says, yeah, I'm willing, but am I to be consigned to a life where I shall be stupid, boring, and glum? Like some righteous people I see. I know I must get along without liquor, but how can I? Have you a sufficient substitute? So, yeah, I thought life was going to be boring and dull without drinking and eating. And I thought that I was going to be boring and dull and stupid. Um, and I was worried, how am I going to fit in? How am I going to fit in with other people? You know, for me, it was... You know, I was a younger mom at the time and it seemed like all the moms would get together, socialize, and they would have wine and chips and salsa. Like, that's what I wanted to be able to do. I wanted to be able to drink my wine and eat my chips and salsa and not have to plate my food or, but just eat casually. And I thought that it was going to make me boring and dull, right? To not be able to do that. But Really, when I looked back at myself with honesty, with honest eyes, um, you know, only an addict in the throes of the food actually believes that they're more exciting when they're eating. You know, how exciting was my life when I was lying on the couch or sitting in my car eating alone? Because that's what it looked like for me. Um, so what becomes my substitute? What becomes of us now? Will I get a substitute? Or will, you know, it's like, or will I forever be like an empty hole, right? On page 152, the second paragraph says, yes, there is a substitute. And it's vastly more than that. It is a fellowship in alcoholics anonymous. There you will find release from care, boredom, and worry. And life will mean something at last. So we absolutely get a substitute. But actually, something much more than a substitute, vastly more, you know, because a substitute is something that serves in place of another, right? It's to replace. And, um, you know, and in like in psychological terms, it becomes like a thing that becomes the object of love when you're deprived of a natural outlet. That's what they talk about as a substitute. So when I read this, I think about the feeling of love for food rather than the feeling of love I had for people. That was my substitute. And, and it was a sorry one, really sorry um, in comparison to feeling the love of God and to the love of humans and what we get as a life that actually means something, a true purpose and a mission. You know, and when I came to OA, it was not originally because I was bored. That is not what brought me here or that I thought I lacked imagination. Um, I did not know that my life was lacking meaning. I did not know that I didn't have purpose. What brought me here was that I had an unmanageable problem. And, um, and really it was my simplistic mind was I was fat and miserable and I knew what I needed to do, and yet I couldn't do it. And that drove me to a point of desperation. When you know what you're supposed to do, and you still can't do it, when you're rendered powerless, 
And that's an important requirement. And I, you know, I thought that OA was just going to give me more willpower. It was going to help me shed my extra weight and that I would be fine then. And I didn't think that it was a lack of living a satisfactory life that was my problem. And I do remember initially I put the food down and I felt sad. I did feel sad and I did feel lonely and I didn't know how was I going to have vacations with my family. We used to camp all the time. We would go camping and I didn't understand how was I going to be able to go camping and not eat s'mores. How was I going to be able to go camping and not drink a lot of mixed drinks and and connect that way or just, you know, really engage with the food? And um, but, you know, page 153, the first paragraph says, how can they rise out of such misery, bad repute and hopelessness? And the practical answer is that since these things have happened with among us, they can happen with you should you wish them above all else and be willing to make use of our experience. We are sure they will come. The age of miracles is still with us and our own recovery proves that. So we always say that the age of miracles is still with us. I just love that. That is a really important point for us. Um, and I say, I'm a walking, breathing miracle. You know, I really and truly feel this deep down in my heart. Um, and this miracle is available for anyone, it says, but there's two conditions. One, you must wish this, this miracle above all else, meaning you have to want this and put this at the front of your life. It has to be more important really than anything. This relationship with God, this miraculous experience. Um, I could not fit recovery into my life. I had to build my life around recovery. I had to want this way of living more than any number on the scale. I had to want it more than I wanted to weigh something, more than I wanted quick weight loss. And I had to want it more than any piece of candy, right? More than anything, more than fitting in with my colleagues, more than fitting in with other moms, more than feeling comfortable camping, more than being the head of vast enterprises, Bill says. Like you had to, you had to want it more than anything. And, and you have to use the experience of others. So I had to be willing to listen to other people and lean on them and listen to their experience. And I'd say, this is why we don't water down our course of action. I cannot make the directions easier and cut corners because it won't work, right? Um, so, you know, the I'm gonna I'm gonna um, I'm gonna let Janet at this point jump in, and then I will. Thank you. Thanks. Well, hi everyone. I'm Janet, recovered from compulsive eating and bulimia, and I know that this is probably a lot of y'all's favorite story and it is great right there's a meeting's been named after this chapter um and what i like about this chapter is that hidden in the stories of the different people here who recovered there's so many good recovery principles and the bottom of page 153 starts with the story of how bill wilson met Dr. Bob and like started Alcoholics Anonymous. Like this is how it all got started. And there's 
lots of recovery principles here. I'm just going to try and hit on um, a few that I think are important. Um, the first recovery principle that I want to talk about is that circumstances are never the cause of relapse, right? Circumstances are never the cause of relapse. I think a lot of us have been to meetings where people have said, or we've said ourselves, I broke my abstinence because dot, dot, dot. And the dot, dot, dot was always like, I don't know, a lousy boss, a rotten husband, annoying kids, always a reason that had to do with circumstances. I remember once saying I binged because the weather wasn't sunny on a day when I wanted to be outside with my boyfriend. Um, but if we're eating compulsively, it's always 100% of the time because there's something wrong with our spiritual condition. It never depends on circumstances. Um, remember Jim, who we read about in chapter three, he had his family, he had a job, all was going well externally, but because he failed to enlarge his spiritual life, he got drunk. So let's look at our chapter now where the hero of the story, right? Bill Wilson is introduced bottom of page 153, top of 154. The text says he was bitterly discouraged in a strange place, discredited, almost broke. That sounds like really bad. But instead of getting drunk, he started Alcoholics Anonymous because, and this is important, he had surrendered his life to God and therefore he was protected. See, we don't not binge because we're good or because we work hard. The only way we're able to not binge is because we're protected by God. Um, well, how do I get protected, right? It's, you know, I used to think, well, it's not fair. Does God just like flip a coin? Heads, he protects me, tails, he doesn't. No, he doesn't. But it's like, if I want to get to New York City, um, I need to go out by the bus stop. You know, the bus will take me into New York City, but I need to get on the bus stop, get out to the bus stop and have my money ready to pay the fare. Um, so again, we're protected by God, but we have to put ourselves in the place to be protected by him. And that's the steps. Um, but there's some really cool history here. Um, as a lot of us know, when Bill Wilson said, you know, he felt bad and he said, okay, I need to call someone. I need to go help a drunk. And he made six calls. There were it, there was a payphone and a directory of churches. And I believe there were six churches there. And it wasn't until the last one where he got in touch with someone who got him in touch with this woman, Henrietta. So Henrietta was in a spiritual group with Dr. Bob. And at one of those group meetings, Dr. Bob said, I think I have a drinking problem. I mean, I can picture them all right, laughing behind their hand, like, yeah, right, Bill, tell us something we don't know. Um, but they didn't laugh at him. They prayed. They all started praying for Dr. Bob and they prayed, really believing that one, there was a God and two, that this God answered prayer. So when two weeks later, Henrietta got a call from this strange dude from New York asking if there was a drunk he could help, she simply said, we've been expecting you. We've been expecting you. They prayed with faith that God would hear and answer their prayers, which I believe is a second recovery principle here. Prayer really works. 
It really works. Just like money is the currency in the physical world and makes things happen, faith activated through prayer is currency in the spiritual world and actually makes things happen. And that's why our second step is so important. When we come to believe that God can restore us to sanity, that's actually the beginning of God restoring us to sanity. So Bill and Dr. Bob meet and the details of their meeting are on page 155. And Dr. Bob's agreed that no amount of willpower he might muster could stop his drinking for long. True. Third recovery principle I wanna talk about is willingness. So Bill told Dr. Bob all about the recovery program and Dr. Bob was enthusiastic about it. He said he would do anything except admit to his patients that he was an alcoholic. And of course he got drunk again, because as long as we say we're willing to do anything except fill in the blank, um, we won't recover. But as we know, the story has a happy ending because once Dr. Bob decided he would face his problems squarely so that God might give him mastery, he stopped drinking and Alcoholics Anonymous was born. His willingness allowed God to do a great and mighty work through him. So the final recovery principle I want to talk about, because I think it's really important to understand, especially if we're new, is that it's critical to understand what powerlessness is. Um, a lot of us get confused because we confuse desire with power. I spent six and a half years in OA eating compulsively. And I think a lot of people thought I didn't have the desire to stop binging. I had the desire. I just didn't have the power. And if we want to look back later, we can find on page 45 of our big book, it clearly states that lack of power, not lack of desire, is our problem. So on page 157, Bill and Bob, they're recovered, and they go and they talk about AA number three, who they met in the hospital. AA number three couldn't understand why, even though he had a desperate desire to quit, he couldn't stop drinking. And so Bill and Dr. Bob talked about the mental state preceding the first drink. And I think that's probably the most important thing for someone who's new to understand, the mental state that precedes the first compulsive bite. And the way I understand it is like this, that normally my defense against doing something dangerous is my memory, right? Let's say I'm about to touch a hot stove. In my memory are stored all these data points telling me that touching a hot stove is dangerous. So if I'm about to clean up after dinner and wipe down that stove, my memory will really quickly grab the data, send a little thought running across the bridge, connecting to my conscious mind to say, stop, danger, hot stoves will burn you. And I don't touch the stove. Or anyone who knows me knows I have this terrible cat allergy. So stored in my memory are a bunch of data points of cat-induced asthma attacks. So if I'm tempted to go into a pet store or visit a friend who has a cat, my memory grabs the data points, generates a thought to run across the bridge to say, stop, danger, cats will give you an asthma attack. Again, my memory keeps me from danger. But with food, didn't work that way. I used to binge on these certain kind of cookies in college. They'd come in a box of 20. I tell myself, I'm just going to eat one or two. And we all know how that story ended. And it did not end with, and she lived happily ever after. Um, I would eat that whole box and sometimes more and sometimes make myself throw up. 
So in my memory were all these data points of you promised yourself you were just going to eat one, but you ended up eating the whole box, all that over and over. So there I'd go about to buy a box to just eat one. My memory grabs the data points, generates a thought to run across the bridge to my conscious mind to say, stop danger. You won't be able to stop at one. You'll eat the whole box. You'll hate yourself. You'll gain weight. Don't do it. Except unlike with hot stoves and cats, when it came to food, the bridge was broken and the thought couldn't get across. My memory failed to hold me in check and I had no defense against the first compulsive bite. And that's where AA number three was. So how did he recover? He started out that way. How did he recover? Well, how do we all recover if our bridges are broken and there's no connection between our memory and our conscious mind when it comes to food or for him, alcohol? How, and how did it even get broken? Um, there's a couple of answers put forth in different parts of the book. Dr. Bob says that selfishness played an important part in bringing on his alcoholism. Dr. Paul, who wrote the story, Acceptance Was the Answer, wrote another book. I think it's called, There's More to Not Drinking Than Not Drinking. And he says, God stamps every 10th baby an alcoholic. Um, basically what he's saying is that we don't know how we became alcoholics or compulsive eaters. But what we do know is that once the bridge between our memory and our conscious mind is broken, it can't be fixed. So what do we do? How did AA number three recover? How do we all recover if our bridges are broken? Well, the answer is we build another bridge and it starts with faith. On page 158, we see AA number three saying, I'm paraphrasing, maybe God can help me, maybe. His faith started with a maybe. And I found that when we're starting out, if we're not sure that God can help, it's okay to say maybe. The prayer can go something like this. God, if you even exist, I need some help. And the worst that can happen is there is no God and you're talking to dead air. But I believe there really is. And that a prayer like that sets things in motion for our recovery. So that's where AA number three was. And on page 158, it says, he gave his life to the care and direction of his creator and said he was perfectly willing to do anything necessary. And that brings us to the last recovery principle I'm gonna talk about, um, surrendering to the will of God as we understand him. That means we don't think, what do I feel like doing? We think, what would God have me do? And we do it to the best of our abilities, knowing we're going to make mistakes. That's why we have a nightly review, but we surrender and we don't just surrender our food. We surrender our marriages. We surrender our jobs. We surrender for me, the hardest thing, my children and their future. Um, we surrender it. So to summarize, like we start building our bridge to God with a little bit of faith that we have. And we continue by surrendering to God's will. And then, of course, we clear away the wreckage of our past and help others. And when we do that, we reap all these amazing promises, including the removal of the food obsession. Like, as it says on page 161, we will have a vision of the great reality, our loving and all-powerful creator. And then Melissa's going to finish up. But the main thing that I want in my notes, I have you guys, but now that I'm a Southerner, that I want you all to take away is that recovery is 100% possible for all of us. If we do what they did, we can have exactly what they had. 
And what, I mean, what is that? It's the experience of God entering our hearts and lives in a way that's truly miraculous. Now, Melissa will finish it all up. Awesome. Thank you. So I'm going to jump in on page 159, um, the second paragraph. These men had found something brand new in life, though they knew they must help other alcoholics if they would remain sober. That motive became secondary. It was transcended by the happiness they found in giving themselves for others. And they shared their homes, their slender resources, and gladly devoted their spare hours to fellow sufferers. They were willing by day or night to place a new man in the hospital and visit him afterward. And I, you know, what I think is significant about that paragraph is it shows that, you know, when I talk about the miracles that happened to me, I oftentimes will share my photos, right? And that I, the reason I share them, I always say it's a visual demonstration of what it means to have an experience with the miraculous. And that's one that people can see. And that usually, in my experience, has been what has allowed me to be helpful with specific people. They're like, what, what happened? But this miracle, this internal miracle, I would say is greater than losing 160 pounds. If you can believe it, it truly is. That this brand new thing that happens is that when I first learned that I was gonna have to help other people, it was so that I would remain abstinent, so that I would, and it was, it was fear was a little bit of my motivation. It was, I'm afraid to sponsor. And the answer is usually met with, um, I'd be afraid not to, right? Because the only, we only get immunity through helping other people. But the most incredible miracle that what transcends is that we actually find happiness in doing the very thing that saves our lives. And that I think is, um, you know, one of the most indescribably wonderful miracles that happened. And I, I felt it happen to me that I want to help other people, that it is actually the bright spot that service in this fellowship is not, for me, it's not done out of drudgery. It's because I feel passionate about it. And I, I mean, pe people say to Janet and I, oh my gosh, you do so much. You talk all the time. And we kind of chuckle. We're like, they don't know that we love this. This gives me great delight. And I feel the same with working with others. It really, you know, that's the miracle that God, performs for us. Um, the other thing that I think is so incredible in that paragraph, it says here that they placed a new man in the hospital and visited him afterward. And what I get from that is when we meet people who are in the throes of this illness, although we might not place compulsive overeaters in a hospital room, we do treat them as though they're patients right? As though they're in a hospital. And oftentimes we've discussed, you know, we have this term that we like to use that's like the hospitalization period, which sort of means a safe and protected period where we remove outside distractions as much as possible. 
but we don't send people in this hospitalization period alone. I am not, I personally don't tell people, get three days and call me when you've got three days. To me, that's not placing someone in a hospital and visiting them. Visiting them means counseling them, offering them guidance, giving them love and support, knowing that if a person is truly powerless, fear of a sponsor dropping them is not going to be enough to sober anybody up. In fact, what I find happens is fear of a sponsor dropping somebody often encourages dishonesty in people who have uh, a, a, a tenuous grip on what it means to be honest to begin with, right? So um, we're supposed to, you know, visit people afterward, right? When they're still in the hospital. Page 159, the bottom sentence says, it becomes it became customary to set apart one night a week for a meeting to be attended by anyone or everyone interested in a spiritual way of life. That's the purpose of a meeting. That's why we come together. That's why at strong meetings, we don't spend a lot of time discussing at length details of food plans or sobriety or abstinence or it's it's we're here because we're interested in a spiritual way of life that should be our work and and so when when we meet people and they you know my experience was I was like well I'm not comfortable with the spiritual aspect of the program there is no spiritual aspect of the program this is a spiritual program period you know, and what I heard someone say is that to leave out the spiritual aspect of the program is like giving somebody a life vest without the stuff inside that keep people afloat. It's just a bunch of material, right? It can do nothing. So we meet because we're interested in more than just sobriety. We meet because we want a spiritual way of life. Page 161, the second pa paragraph two says, being wrecked in the same vessel, being restored and united under one God with hearts and minds attuned to the welfare of others. The things which matters so much to some people no longer signify much to them. How could they? And this to me is a description of what it means to have a spiritual awakening that the things that used to interest me, that the things that used to fulfill me and make me feel excited aren't the same anymore. You know, and it's, and it is something I would say that sets me apart from other people as well. So yes, normal people, remember, can eat socially, but normal people don't have to help others in order to survive. And today I see that as a gift. You know, what, um, the girlfriend that I was talking about in the beginning of the text, in the beginning of this talk that came over, you know, that we went to dinner and she was in the middle of a divorce and right. My friend came to the house today and um, I happened to make her, I made her lunch. <laughs> I made her the lunch that I eat and we had the richest conversation where we talked about everything. I could care less about what she consumed, what I consumed, but my heart and mind was fixed 
on her as a human. So I don't draw closer to others by breaking bread together. That's not what felt closer with her today. Although we did share a meal together, I undoubtedly draw closer to others by being of service, by actually being useful to them. Page 162, the third paragraph says, thus we grow, and so can you. Though you be but one man with this book in your hand, we believe and hope it contains all you will need to begin. We know what you're thinking. You are saying to yourself, I'm jittery and alone. I couldn't do that, but you can. <laughs> you forget that you have just now tapped a source of power much greater than yourself. So, you know, what this tells me is that any time that we are working with other people, it's not my power that I am transmitting and giving over, but I've tapped in to something greater. And what we get to be is channels. We get to actually take the, the source of power, the strength that we receive, and we allow it to flow through us to help others. So no one need be afraid. If you've had a spiritual awakening, right? You don't need to be afraid because it's not gonna be your power. That's gonna be the thing that's gonna help anybody. We don't have to be afraid to work with others. We can duplicate with such backing, the backing of God, we can duplicate what we've accomplished. It's only a matter of willingness, patience and labor. So yes, we continue to be willing and we continue to have patience, right? This work takes time and labor. We have to be willing to do work. Jittery, nervous, and unable to relax. I think about that. And when I'm jittery, you know, it's because I'm consumed with the future and I'm with and with myself. And feeling jittery and alone and isolated in his sobriety. I felt this way both in the food and out of the food. But if I live in agreement with my primary purpose which is to carry the message to the still suffering, then I don't need to feel jittery and alone because I know that when I'm afraid, I need only turn towards my creator and I am comforted and I have all the strength I need. Page 164, still you may say, but I will not have the benefit of contact with you who write this book. We cannot be sure. God will determine that. So you must remember that your real reliance is always upon him. Our real reliance is always upon God. He will show you how to create the fellowship you crave. And I, I love this. You know, God determines who comes in my life and who leaves my life. And ultimately, my reliance is always on God. People are people. I need fellowship. That's true, but God provides me with the fellowship that I crave. And I love that, the way that it's used, the word crave. What do I crave for today? I crave for, for people who are seeking a spiritual way of life. I found that no matter what problems I've experienced, God always puts people in my life who help me through these hard times. And God also provides me with people who I can pass my experience on to. 
And how has this happened? Through willingness, patience, and labor. Willing to be honest, not worshiping reputation or public approval, people's opinions of me, honest about my past and my present, and patient. The ability to tolerate the discomfort I feel while I wait. That's what it means to be patient. And, you know, delaying gratification and allowing life to unfold rather than trying to force an outcome. Labor, what's labor? This program is work. It's working with others, working by giving service, but the work becomes irresistible. In page 164, our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. Each person just knows a little bit, but God will just constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation, which you can do each day for the man who's still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the spirit. And you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then. So God will reveal what I need to see and what my path is to be if I ask him, which means pray. I actually have to ask God, what's my path? And I ask him how I can help others. There's step 11. If I stay close to God, I'm promised great events. I abandon myself to God, meaning I give myself, I offer myself. That's step three, I surrender. I admit my faults. And I clear away the wreckage. Those are steps four through 10. And I give freely That's step 12. This is the path so I can trudge the road of happy destiny. And you think of the word trudging. You know, it means deliberate, slow, and steady. It's not skipping and it's not dancing. And it's not a sprint. When I read that, it lets me know that I can live happily through the hard times as well as the good. That is my experience. And I've continued to live a life full in recovery, full of loss, full of trials and pain and joy. And we no longer suffer. And with that, I will pass.